Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. In chapter 1, we've seen the doctrine of Christ's preexistence, his deity, and that he is the creator. He's the life and light of men, that John the Baptist was his witness bearer. We've also seen that we have also seen Jesus call his first disciples. In chapter 2, we will see Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana. We will see the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so now we're kind of getting out of the direct theological teaching of Jesus being the Word and the Word being God and the Word dwelling among men. Now we're getting to kind of the narrative of the events that take place in the life of Christ. And so we're going to look through this together. together. And we're going to start in chapter 2 in verse 1. And it says, In the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So when we see the third day, what does that mean? Well, we've already looked. There's a kind of series of events in John chapter 1 that talk about the next day. Uh, these things were done in, in, in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. I'm looking at verse 28 of chapter 1. And then verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus. Then again, the next day after John stood, verse 35. So when we start in verse 35, okay, the day after John stood, two of his disciples looking up, he seeth Jesus, and he calls out, Behold the Lamb of God. Skip down to verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. Okay, and he finds Philip and says unto him, Follow me. And then we have uh, Philip finding Nathanael, uh, and so on. And chapter 2, verse 1, in the third day, <clears throat> so this is the day after Jesus finds Philip and Nathanael. This is the day after uh, what is described in verse 43, and it's the third day after verse 35. Okay, so these things are happening kind of in rapid succession. In the beginning, they're in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Then we get to um, day number, the well, day in verse 43 where Jesus goes forth in the Galilee. And then the very next day after that, there is a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. We all on the same page as far as that goes? Okay, the day after verse 43, which is the third day after verse 35. Okay? And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. 
And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. Now, if you're like me, sometimes I look at something and don't, you know, quickly interpret it in the correct fashion. I get a misconception. And, uh, you know, if you have a more modern version, it probably says when they lacked wine or when they ran out of wine or when there was no more wine. The old English idea of wanted, when they wanted wine, it means they ran out. It means that they had wine to begin with. And then at some point in the wedding, hey, there's no more wine. We're lacking wine. We're, we're in want of wine, okay? So they're at this wedding in Cana, which, by the way, is on your map there. You can see the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Magdala, Tiberias. If you look really close, you can see our missionary, Moshe Gold. <laughs> and then there's Cana, okay? Cana is where the wedding feast is. So they get there, and uh, when they wanted wine, when they lacked wine, when they ran out of the wine that was supplied for the wedding, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Now, how many of you have a mother that you can imagine doing something like this to you? You know, I mean, sometimes our mothers tend to over, my mom might be watching this right now. Um, you know, sometimes they can uh, have a higher opinion of their sons and daughters than, you know, not so here, but it's kind of like, well, you can do that. Why don't you go fix that? You know, you're, you're good at that, right? Or, you know, being volunteered for something. I can't think of an instance. I thought about it a little bit ago, but I kind of forgot that I was going to try and think of an example. But here, Jesus' mother, Mary, goes up to him and she's like, they don't have any wine. And it's kind of almost implied, can't you do something? <laughs> you know? And then we see Jesus' response, uh, which is, which is uh, kind of, it's a reserved rebuke, yeah, what, what we see. But let's look at this, uh, this idea of they have no wine. It should be noted that the Greek oinos, wine, okay, is not by necessity alcoholic, but is also the word used for fruit of the vine, as in juice, okay? Now, the Hebrew parallel to this, and you'll like this, um, it's kind of funny. The Hebrew word for wine is yayin, yayin. Uh, it sounds like wayin, but it's yayin. Okay, that's the Hebrew parallel. And the Hebrew parallel is also used to speak of wine that is alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And the content, context of the passage determines uh, which is which. Context can determine which usage is correct. Also, due to the absence of the distilling process, now I am by no means, and I don't pretend to be, I am by no means... Uh, an expert on the distilling process of alcoholic beverages. Um, but due to the absence of the modern technology, Buzz, Buzz is the expert, we can ask him. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I guess so. All right, so. Well, speaking, speaking of alcoholic beverage, uh, okay, so Bob's the expert then. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, I may call on your assistance here as we go through this lesson to get, you know, a first-hand uh, experience. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
when you were a kid. Now, when I think of a kid, I think of like, you know. You know what? You know what? Maybe because Mark's not here, maybe Bob would, you know, just kind of loosen up a little bit. But uh, a little bit. Well, you'll know, you'll know if the next time you see Mark, he says, hey, moonshine. So, yeah, you'll probably get a text here in a minute, you know, greeting you as moonshine. Anyway, um, okay. It was also um, due to the absence of the distilling process, the strength of biblical alcohol, okay? So not speaking of wine specifically, but biblical alcohol in general could not be raised to the level that we can today because of having all of these different, you know, even at the most basic level, the freezing process, I guess, by what I've read. The freezing process, being able to freeze it and control the temperature in such a way can allow for a higher concentration of alcohol to be produced. So anyway, they didn't have that back then, especially in Israel. I mean, it's hot in Israel. Uh, so anyway... Also, um, the strength of biblical alcohol was, by modern standards, very weak, okay? Talking about alcohol in general, by what you could get back then. It was also generally greatly diluted with water. Now, this was kind of interesting. In the research that I've done, back in, like, Old Testament times, they didn't really dilute the wine, okay? But right around the time of the, you know, Hanukkah and Alexander the Great and all those different things that occurred a couple hundred years before Jesus, okay, um, they started in, in, it was basically like a Roman practice that it became the normal thing to dilute the wine. And if you did not dilute it, it was considered barbaric. And we have this like in the writings of Josephus and others from the time of Christ that it's, it, if, if you don't dilute the wine, it's basically either looked at as by barbaric or you're using this for medicinal purposes. So whenever it was consumed by the general public, it was almost always, by the time of Christ, almost always biblical wine was diluted. Um, like three parts water, one part wine, and sometimes even more. Also, you know, they want to make it stretch, right? So, you know, put some water in there, it'll be okay. Um, but this is interesting. Technically, all modern alcoholic beverages, okay, all modern alcoholic beverages, for the most part, this is almost entirely true. There may be one or two exceptions, but by and far, all modern alcoholic beverages would be equal to or greater than biblical strong drink. Okay, and I have a, a chart here that I'm going to share some things with you about it. Okay, what's the Hebrew word for wine? Yayin. No. Uh, how would you spell yayin? Uh, Y-A-Y-I-N? That's yayin. I don't know, it's just... <laughs> yeah, you... What's that? Yayin. Anyway, use your, you know, however you want to spell it. Um, what's the Greek word for wine? We're going we're gonna to learn some interesting things tonight. Oinas. Okay, oinas. The Hebrew word for strong drink is shechar. 
Shachar is strong drink, and it denotes any inebriating drink with about 7 to 10% alcoholic content. Okay, so biblical strong drink, according to the processes that they had, that they could avail themselves to, and what was generally able to be produced in that climate, in that situation, you know, in, in, in different situations that are exceptional, they may be able to produce something that is stronger than that, but generally, according to the general public and what was available readily, strong drink was considered to be alcohol that had a content of 7 to 10% alcoholic content. Um, not hard liquor, um, because there is no evidence of distilled liquor in ancient times. It was made from either fruit or barley beer. The term can include wine, but generally it is used in combination with it, wine and strong drink, to encompass all varieties of intoxicants. Now, I downloaded this thing, and this is, this is from a separate website. I felt kind of weird going to this website. How, how strong is the drink of your choice? Um, okay, so in general, if you're like me and you have no clue about any of this stuff, maybe you'll learn something. But um, beers generally today, this is talking about modern, okay? Generally today, any and all beers that you find on the shelf have an alcohol content of 3 to 10%, okay? 3 to 10%. Wines today generally have an alcoholic content of 8 to 14%, okay? <clears throat> and this is, you know, due to different technologies, not necessarily distilling, right, but just the ability that they have to get a maximum fermentation, more efficient, you know, having wine cellars and so on, um, and different climates where it's, you know, if we didn't have that kind of a thing, if you're not in a place that has that kind of a climate. Um, okay, so uh, fortified wines, strong wines, okay, like sherry and port wine, all other stuff like that, has an alcoholic content of 16 to 22%. So if you take that, these, these, these modern wines, okay, <clears throat> and by modern I'm talking about like, you know, 16th century <laughs> or 15th century, um, 16 to 22% alcohol. And then we have spirits. I don't know why they ever called them spirits. Anyway, 20 to 70% generally. Now, if you get to like absolute alcohol, okay, like absolute vodka, that's 96 to 98% alcohol content. Um, so anyway, when you look at what we have as far as modern alcohol goes, pretty much all of what we have, even just a beer off the shelf, could be considered biblical strong drink. Now, some of it might not be, but generally, all of these different categories of modern alcoholic beverages, if you placed it next to what was strong drink in Bible times, it would be equal to or greater than, generally. Um, anyway, so that's that. Any questions, comments? We're going to go into a couple of, you know, how does this apply to this passage? How do we interpret this passage? Um, but as far as what's gone on so far, any? Okay. All right, so we come to verse number four and Jesus' response to Mary. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, 
What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now here when he calls her woman, there is no disrespect. I mean today, you know, you see stuff on TV, people being like, woman? But that's not what Jesus is saying here, okay? Even in, in, in the end of the book of John, this term is used in an endearing way when Jesus is on the cross. And he talks to John, and he talks to Mary, and he says, woman, behold thy son. Uh, anyway, and the instances where we see Jesus use the term woman, referring to his mother, there's at least three times in Scripture where he does this. Um, each, of, each and every one of them is where Jesus is kind of taking him out of the position of her earthly son and saying, how are you, you know, referring to me this way? I, I am your God. I am your Savior. I am the Messiah. I am your Creator. And so at that level, yes, he can call her woman, okay? But then also when he's on the cross and he says, woman, behold thy son, you know, referring to John, that they're going, John is going to take care of Mary. Mary's going to have John in that relationship um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you can kind of see a kind of change there where he transcends being her earthly son. Yes, the Lord chose her to bring the Messiah into the world and to give him an earthly physical body, but Jesus transcends that, and he's able to say, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Or when he's on the cross in a more endearing way, not in any way of a rebuke, but saying, this is me talking to you as your Savior. This is me talking to you as your God. So here, and this is interesting, the phrase, what have I to do with thee? It's actually a Hebrew phrase. It, or, it originates in the Hebrew. And uh, in the New Testament, um, even though the New Testament was written in Greek, it translates it in a way that it shows the Hebrew roots of what's being said. Like, for instance, okay, do we have anybody in here that's bilingual? Okay, bilingual. A little bit? Okay. Uh, how do you say, I was going to try and think of how you say it's raining cats and dogs in Spanish. It's los gatos. I don't know how you say dogs. How do you say dogs? Anyway, so if somebody, I mean, that's not necessarily a Spanish phrase in origin that I know of. But if somebody went to like Mexico and they're fluent in Spanish and they're like, it's raining cats and dogs, you might have somebody in Mexico look at you kind of weird if they weren't familiar with that phrase. You're using the right words, you're using the right vocabulary, but you're speaking a phrase that is not part of that culture. When Jesus says, what have I to do with thee? Okay, in the Greek, um, it's what to me and to you. What to me and to you. And that Greek phrase in the New Testament, the New Testament was written in Greek, okay, that Greek phrase ties back to a phrase that's used in both Judges and Samuel. It's a Hebrew phrase. And in Hebrew, and uh, Ken and, and Cheryl will appreciate this, Mali Valech, or Valach. Mali, what to me, Valach, and to you. And here it's translated, what have I to do with thee? So, the, 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 here, let's look at this thing here. 
All right. The phrase, what have I to do with thee, is of Hebrew origin and is seen numerous time, times in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. What to me and to you? And there's the phrase right there in, in the Hebrew. And it's used the same way in the Greek. They don't say in the Greek, what have I to do with thee? It's just, this is how the translators... Does anybody have this written in kind of a different uh, phrase for what Jesus says to, to Mary? What have I to do with thee? Yes? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the stress of this um, phrase is 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 kind of I'm disconnected from what you're trying to say, you know, from what you're like, you know, what is what is your concern have to do with me or what? And it, it's kind of hard to to get because we don't really have this concept or this phrase in our modern English lingo. Yes. Well, that's true. That's true. That is, a, that is a modern equivalent. Like here, you know, what have I to do with the um, what to me and to you? It, but it's, it, it is that kind of a feeling. Yeah. Um, you know, when she says, they ran out of wine. What does that have to do with me? <laughs> you know, and you can kind of get what he's saying, even though the phraseology is different than something... It could be. I mean, what he's saying, he, he mentions me and he mentions you. So, I mean, I'm not as well versed in this concept um, to be able to say that, but it very well could. You know, what does this have to do with you and me? Um, why should we care that they ran out of wine? You know, and why are you telling me to do this? And he, he, he realized that because of the phrase, mine hour is not yet come. You know, you're, you're, you're asking me to do something that will reveal something about myself that I was not, you know, desiring to reveal right now, which is very interesting. And we're going to get into something here in a, in, in a minute that uh, is just amazing, referring to Jesus' hour. What is he talking about with his hour? Um, but anyway, finishing what we have in this, this paragraph here, it's a restrained rebuke, okay? So Jesus isn't saying, okay, 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 I'll do it. He's not being a pushover, but he rebukes her. Now, when he rebukes her, he rebukes her in a way that's, that's gentle, that's restrained, that's kind, but also letting her know, you're kind of overstepping your bounds here, Mary, by asking me to do this. And yet, he complies anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our Savior is a, is a gentleman. We see this amazing kind of parallel between I guess you could say what Jesus desired or the order in which he desired to reveal things, and that gets changed. And so it's just kind of neat that he doesn't just say, because I mean, some people have this concept of God, of the Lord, in, specifically in respect to believers, okay, and God's relationship with believers. That God, that we, we would expect God to say something like, no, just get out of here, <laughs> you know? But God doesn't do that. He, so to speak, humors Mary's request, even though based on what Jesus himself says, 
this isn't the best time to do this because of my desire to reveal myself in a specific way. And yet, you know, I mean, we're not robots. God created us with free will. He created Mary with free will. When Daniel is talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, you know, your kingdom is going to be taken from you and all this different stuff is going to happen. But Daniel also says, but who can tell if you'll repent that maybe God will have mercy? You know, and so there's this constant concept in the scripture of God is sovereign. God decrees that this is going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar. Or God decrees that, you know, sinners are approached to any people, um, but the nation who's, uh, but blesses the nation whose God is the Lord. You know, there's certain things in Scripture that are, that are set in stone. But yet there's also this concept of by us reacting to God, he will respond differently. And so if we, like Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, who can tell? If you just if you seek, seek God, repent, you know, and, 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 and beseech him, who can tell if he'll have, he'll have mercy? So there is this concept of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And that God responds, you know, like when God repented of the destruction that he was going to rain down upon Nineveh. Why did he do that? Well, because of Nineveh's reaction to his message of destruction and repent. Um, and so... Exactly. And we can, we can infer by the way that Jesus responds. You know, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. So if we read between the lines, you know, she can just be, you know, they have no wine, like elbowing him or something. We don't know exactly how it took place, but we know, and plus Jesus knows her thoughts, right? Well, she knows that he could do it then, huh? Yeah. Already knows that, even though he hadn't started doing things like that. You would think, you would, you would assume, and we can almost assume for certain that one way or another, she understood that he was perfectly able to solve their wine problem. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, I mean, Mary has faith. She has faith to ask him, or to make that statement anyway. Um, you, you have not because you ask not, right? So anyway. Well, he's meek and lowly of heart, and she thought that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But anyway, Jesus is kind in his response. Even though he does rebuke her, we can see by what ensues that he fulfills her request. Now, when Jesus says, my hour is not yet come, what is he speaking about? And I found something just amazing. This really blessed me looking into this. We're going to look at a couple of these different passages. A bunch of them are in John. Jesus' hour is certainly a general reference to his public messiahship. Okay, his public messiahship. We'll see something like this a little bit later in the book of John. I, I think one of the last verses, or later in this chapter, one of the very last verses of John chapter 2, there's a similar concept, but um, reference to his public messiahship being revealed. But listen to this. It always has a bold, specific reference to his death. A bold, specific reference to his death on the cross. Let's turn to a couple of these passages here, if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, John chapter 7. Keep your finger or a bookmark in John chapter 2. We'll be back. 
But go over to John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. John chapter 7. After these things, in verse 1, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Even now, if you go into Israel, there's a whole lot more Jewish people in the south than there are up in the northern region. And that's what it was like in Jesus' day. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, into Judah, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth because, but, it, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come. And we'll see this kind of idea of my time paralleled with the idea of my hour. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then he went up also to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Okay, so he said, I'm not going to go up yet. And then after they left, he went up. Um, so he waited for them to go. Skip down to verse 30. This is after Jesus is in Judah. Okay, verse 30 of chapter 7. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Okay? By this point in time, there were certainly those that knew that he was the Messiah or knew that he was perceived to be the Messiah or knew that he taught that he was the Messiah. But the specific reference, those that are seeking to kill him, I mean, there's a reference up in verse number one, the Jews sought to kill him. At that point in time, there was already a price on his head, so to speak. They wanted to get rid of him. And they sought to take him, verse 30, but no man laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come, in reference to his death. Uh, skip over to chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. And as we go through these verses, you're going to see over and over again, his hour is a reference in general to his messianic, uh, his public, you know, being revealed as the Messiah, but specifically his death, his death on the cross. Um, go over to chapter 13, John chapter 13, and verse number 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew, anybody know what that next phrase is? When he knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So, last supper, Passover meal, Jesus is getting ready for his hour to come. Um, go over to Matthew 26. And still keep a bookmark or a finger in John chapter 2. Matthew 26, 
in verse number 45. Matthew 26 and verse 45. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So even in John chapter 2, we find a reference to his hour is not yet come. I mean, he has foreknowledge of everything. You can almost imagine these scenes playing out in his mind when he makes the statement, my hour is not yet come. Um, okay. Um, go over to Mark 14. And I think this will be the last time that we're flipping around to different references. So Mark 14. And look at verse 35. Mark 14, verse 35. This is once again in the garden. Okay. Uh, verse 35 and 41. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse number 41. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, this is a parallel passage, Sleep on now, take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Um, just amazing, amazing passage that really makes a bold relief for us to what exactly Jesus is referring to when he says, my hour is not yet come. Generally, it has a, a messianic reference to revealing publicly that he is the Messiah, but it's always a specific reference tying in with his death. I have some verses here to kind of cap this off, and they're on your sheet in John chapter 12. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. So we can see that throughout the ministry of Jesus, from the beginning to the end, I mean, this is like the first public miracle that he performs. This is the beginning of his ministry. To the end of his ministry, it's always focused on this hour that is to come. So in John chapter 2, Verse number four, he saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Like I said, I mean, this, this would possibly reveal publicly that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But also that would kind of expediate those that are trying to take his life and things that had to transpire in between. Um, so anyway, it's a very kind of a, a, I don't want to say a, a, a hidden gem or jewel, but looking into this passage, we see a reference to his death at the wedding feast in Cana. So his mother saith unto the servants in verse 5 of John chapter 2, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now this is, this is a classic thing. How, have you, how many of you have ever seen the gospel tract, Mary's Command? Anybody ever seen that? 
Mary's Command. There's a gospel tract, a gospel pamphlet entitled Mary's Command, and it has a stained glass picture of Mary on the front. Anyway, um, I think I might have some in the car. I don't know. Um, but we used them a lot in Cleveland. Uh, I've ran into so many Catholic people that when you try and talk to them about the gospel, they'll make the statement, no thanks, I'm Catholic. Or they'll say, I'm Catholic, or I have my own religion. And you know that they're Catholic because they, you can see a crucifix or a statue of Mary or something that, that reveals that that's you know, what they are. And I'd always have this Catholic, you know, this Mary's Command tract in my back pocket. And I would say, oh, well, I, I have something just for you, something right up your alley that you might, you might enjoy. It's the one command that Mary gives in Scripture. You know, wouldn't you like to know what's the one thing that Mary commands? Whatever my son says, do it, and that's and, and that's it. So, and I don't think I've ever had a Catholic person refuse that. So anyway, I think it's like Fellowship Track League. They they do those, but uh, anyway, it's handy to have when you're doing door to door or something like that. Uh, I I knew a preacher that kind of went uh, <laughs> kind of went a step further than that. Uh, he had some tracks that. Uh, we're the Romans road, you know. And if he met a Catholic person that says, no thanks, I'm Catholic, or we're Catholic, he says, well, um, I have something here, and it's the Roman Catholic road. And that's what he would call it. Anyway, I don't want to get in trouble, you know. But uh, he, he would do that. Um, so anyway, this is, this is Mary's command. This is the only time that Mary gives a command in Scripture. And even if you don't have any of those tracts, you know, you can, you can even just verbally mention it. Do you know what the one single command Mary gave in Scripture? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of important? Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. So, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Okay. Now, there's a couple of things here. And this is, this is me with my misconceptions. When we read over Scripture quickly, we kind of usually, at least if you're like me, you kind of get a wrong idea of some things. If we read it over quickly without looking into it. Okay, there were set there six, what? Water pots. These, these pots did not previously contain wine. This is not the location that the wine was before it ran out. These pots are used solely to contain water. Okay, there's six water pots. Now, what is this idea with the purification of the Jews? When, when I would look through this, you know, just however long ago it was and just kind of glance through, I would think to myself, okay, so these, you know, pots that, um, you know, maybe were used to contain wine, maybe they were blessed by a rabbi to be a kosher vessel. And that's not it. The idea of the purification of the Jews is the ritual hand washing because they were at a feast, weren't they? And this was a Jewish wedding, okay? So um, the practice that was certainly um, in act by the time Jesus came on the scene is what's mentioned here, the purification of the Jews, the purification ritual that they had. These water pots of stone, there was six of them. And this would be used by the people who were in attendance at this wedding, at this feast, to perform the ritual hand washing. Like they have at the, at the Wailing Wall, she mentioned. There's um, you know, a vessel there where you can kind of 
you know, I think they have faucets on some of them where you can, you know, wash your hands to have your hands ritually pure and you, you know, Baruch Adonai and you say that kind of blessing. Um, or like in the hotels, they'll have that. And it's part of the ritual hand washing. Anyway, these six water pots of stone contained two or three firkins apiece. So the volume of each of these containers was two or three firkins apiece. What's a firkin? As she asked me earlier. Um, a firkin is about nine gallons. So each of these water pots, there's six of these water pots, and they are two or three firkins apiece. Two or three. So we could potentially have, I'm horrible at math, okay? This shows you how bad I am. Six water pots, each of them potentially having 27 gallon capacity. So 27 times six, yeah, or something. I'll just trust Buzz, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> 54, you know what? I have it written down, 54. <laughs> okay, so 54 gallons of you know, capacity, and what does Jesus say? In the next verse, he says, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay? So these, these water pots, all six of them, are full to the brim. And all that Jesus commanded them to do, there's kind of two, two parts to Jesus' command to these servants at the wedding. Fill the water pots with water, and then he says, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. He didn't say, lo and behold, I'm going to make this into wine and do some kind of, you know. He just says, fill it up with water and take it to the, take it to the governor of the feast. And so um, part of the, what's interesting, maybe for the skeptic, you know those guys, those Egyptians in, in, uh, uh, in Egypt, <laughs> the priests that would counterfeit Moses's, you know, I don't know if it was like this, but it probably wasn't anything like this, but on the, uh, on the cartoon anyway, cartoon movie Prince of Egypt, there was Steve Martin and Martin, uh, Martin uh, Short were the two Egyptian priests, you know. And so they took this kind of powder, it was like Kool-Aid or something, you know, and they just, you know, and make the, so this is to show you nobody is, you know, pouring in wine to level it off. These things were full to the very brim with water. There's no kind of, you know, trickery that can possibly be done with these water pots being filled to the brim. And then go and take it to the governor of the feast. Um, okay, so they filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, draw it now, bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. Now the governor of the feast, you know, I don't know what you picture when you picture the governor of the feast. Best man, when I think of a governor, I think of like you know, somebody in 1800s British garb with a top hat, you know, <laughs> with a monocle, the governor of the feast, you know. But uh, it's kind of like the culinary superintendent. Yeah, he's the big chef. He's the big, she he's, he's the, uh, the caterer for the wedding, okay. <laughs> and this guy, the governor of the feast, was possibly a friend of the family. He could have been. He may have been a total stranger that was hired, you know, by them for the feast aspect, the food aspect, and the drink aspect of the feast. But this guy's job was to provide 
and taste and superintend the service of the food. Okay, so it wasn't just some kind of big wig who was there that was, I don't know. This was, this was the, the superintendent, the manager of the feast. Okay, so his job was involved with the food and drink. Uh, he was the individual, individual put in charge of the dining area. And interestingly enough, this phrase, governor of the feast, in the Greek, it has inside of it the word for dining room, meaning that he's kind of the boss of the dining room. <laughs> but, you know, it carries with it the idea of the food, the food involved in the feast. Um, he was not the superintendent of the guests, but rather the culinary aspect of the feast. So he wasn't the one, you know, like the wedding planner. He was specifically in charge of the food and drink. Um, this could have been a friend of the family or one who, who supplied the location. It could have been the, the owner of the property where the wedding was taking place. His job was to taste food and drink. Now, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, they're thinking, yeah, this is from the water we just poured into these stone pots. But the, the governor of the feast, he had no idea. He didn't know where it was coming from. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, okay? So the governor of the feast, the culinary boss, okay? He says, hey, get the groom over here. I want him to, <laughs> I want him to check this out, okay? The ruler of the feast didn't know uh, that the wine was from the water pots. He saith unto him, this is, this is the uh, ruler of the feast, okay? The ruler of the, the food and drink. He's talking to the groom. And he says, you know, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, when it says when men have well drunk, it really means they're drunk. They're intoxicated. And generally, you know, this guy who's, I, I've been around the block. I've catered a bunch of weddings, and they put out the good wine at the beginning. And then once everybody's just, you know, fallen over or fallen asleep or who knows what as a result of consuming this wine, um, two reasons that they would put out the quote-unquote bad wine. Number one, these guys can't taste anything anyway. You know, they're beyond being able to recognize that, oh, this is good, <laughs> you know. So we might as well, and this is the second aspect, we might as well save some money. So the bad wine, quote-unquote, is either wine that is cheaper, you know, of lesser quality, and or, this could be both, lesser quality and or more diluted. So let's just put in, you know, 20 parts water and a little bit of wine, and, and these guys are just, you know, they're so floored they won't realize anyway that this is, you know, that we're fooling them. Yeah. So the, the ruler of the feast, he says to the groom, you know, usually they start with the good wine, and then once everybody's drunk, and this is apparently near the end of the feast, because they've already run out of wine, haven't they? So he says, you know, usually they, they do this the opposite, but, but now you've brought out the really good stuff. And this guy had no idea what Jesus had done or where the wine came from. This is a somewhat witty statement made by the ruler of the feast, you know, you can just imagine. I mean, it's a, it's a time of celebration. Everybody's having fun, and, you know, there may be people that are drunk. I don't know. But uh, I don't know what a biblical wedding would have been like, <laughs> you know, in, in the Galilee region in the first century. 
But apparently, according to this man whose trade is to supply food and drink for weddings, it seems, or the man who was put in, at the very least, the man who was put in charge of it for this wedding, he says, you know, weddings usually don't happen like this. Usually weddings, you know, they put out the good wine and then everybody's drunk and then they put out the bad stuff. But this is, you know, and it's just kind of, he's kind of being funny, you know. I mean, he's, he's being lighthearted with his, with his comments. He's not saying anything that's, you know, super serious, but it's just his reaction to tasting what Jesus had supplied. Uh, when a feast such as this begins, the best, most expensive wine is put out first. When people are drunken, a cheaper, more diluted wine is used. This is a way to save cost and wouldn't be noticed by those that tarry long at the wine, to borrow the biblical phrase. Now, I believe that this wine that Jesus provided was most likely not alcoholic at all or intoxicating, but pure, sweet, and undiluted. Something that they wouldn't have been used to. Something that would have been just miraculously wonderful, above bar of what they would expect even at the beginning of a wedding. Um, I have a statement here that I want to read to you. Instead of printing out an extra page for everybody, I figured I would just read some of it. Um, okay. In John 2, 1 through 11, the distinguishing fact is that Christ turned water into wine. The Greek word is oinos, and it is claimed that therefore the wine was alcoholic and intoxicating. But as oinos is a generic word, and as such includes all kinds of wine and all stages of the juice of the whole grape, and sometimes the clusters and even the vine, it is begging the whole question to assert that it was intoxicating. As the narrative is silent on this point, the character of the wine can only be determined by the attendant circumstances, by the occasion, by the material used, by the person making the wine, and the moral influence of the miracle. The occasion was a wedding convocation. The material was water. The operator was Jesus Christ. Um, okay, so the moral influence of the miracle will be determined by the character of the wine and is pertinent to act. Is it not derogatory to the character of Christ and the teachings of the Bible to suppose that he exerted his miraculous power to produce at least 60 gallons or 54 gallons of intoxicating wine? 162? Hey. Okay, I, I just proved to you guys how awful I am at math, okay? And, and how good Buzz is, even though he's a little late to the game. Okay. So would Jesus have produced 162 gallons of intoxicating wine, which Scripture, which inspiration has denounced as a mocker? biting like a serpent, stinging like an adder, the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps. Um, <laughs> I wanted to save paper, but if anybody's interested in this, I can, I can uh, print out some more or give you the link. There's a couple of different resources that I've uh, looked at trying to determine this. Um, no, I don't believe that the wine that Jesus created here was alcoholic. And if you think about the circumstances and the time, 
okay, how many of you have had like some apple juice in the fridge? Okay, that's, um, you know, maybe you opened it and drank a little bit, but it, it just sat in there for too long and it kind of got sour. You know what I mean? It kind of went bad. And that's in our modern refrigeration technology at like, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever. They did not have that technology back then. How, how easily do you think if, 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 if wine, I mean, plus, I, this is kind of silly, but it probably didn't taste like feet either, okay? All the people that had to step on it to crush the grapes. I mean, this was the best wine that they had ever had. And like I said, the same word is used if it's alcoholic or not. So in Scripture, we see that, um, you know, there's different references used for different aspects of wine. Sometimes the Scripture praises it and says it's a blessing from the Lord that comes from the earth. And then other instances, they say that it's a mocker and that it's raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And uh, so when you look at these things, you almost can see there's two different wines, but they're with the same, same term. And context will determine what's what. And even if it, even if it was, it, speaking of the wine which was at this wedding before Jesus did this miracle, it would have been like having to drink however, many, however much beer. I mean, there was like no such thing as hard liquor in Bible times. And what they could achieve by alcohol content was much less and usually diluted. And so I believe what Jesus provided was like pure, fresh, undiluted, best grape juice you ever had in your life. Like, 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 that, like that Kedem stuff back there. It depends. The, the, there's a reference in Acts chapter 2. Remember when everybody's, you know, speaking in tongues and giving the gospel uh, to those Jewish pilgrims at the temple? And uh, some of them mocked and said, these men are full of new wine. M meaning in that case, they're referring to these men are drunk. And they use the term new wine. So I'm not too sure. Um, I'm not too sure. But, but here, according to, you know, well, what I'm going to say is this is my opinion. And it doesn't, explicit, it doesn't explicitly state in Scripture. If you look for an explicit statement of whether it was or not, you're not going to find it. But when we deduce these different factors and think about the implications of 162 gallons of alcoholic wine for people that were already stupering, <laughs> you know, um, that's just, my, that's just my, my take on it. But yeah, it doesn't state uh, explicitly. And, uh, you know, but... Um, so it was, it was interesting for me to kind of look into this. Um, did I ever tell you guys, since we're on the subject, if I'm ever going to say this, I might as well say it now. Um, I had an interesting experience, the only time I've ever tasted wine, and it was at a synagogue. Uh, every, every Shabbat, they had what they call an oneg supper. An oneg supper or oneg meal is kind of like, um, well, it's like this. You know, after Bible study, we're going to have an oneg. And it's basically fellowship over some refreshments, you know. There's cookies and, you know, cake, you know, kind of thing. But they always had a loaf of challah bread and they had some wine. Now they had two different kind of platters uh, with these little cups on it. On the one side, you had the alcoholic wine for the adults. On the other side, you had grape juice for the kids. Guess who grabbed from the wrong side? And so, you know, he gives the blessing, benediction, whatever, you know, and everybody just, you know, l'chaim or whatever. 
And I'm thinking, this is not grape juice. <laughs> so anyway, that's my experience with, with, with wine. Um, that was like five years ago. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I have to I have to rely on people like Bob and Buzz to give me the uh, the facts. <laughs> yeah. And Irish. And Russian. So, you know. Yeah. So anyway, Yeah, 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 and you know, I mean, there's different, like for instance, the Good Samaritan, you know, who rescued that man. He put oil and wine on his, on his wounds. Grape juice probably wouldn't do nothing but make it sticky. So, you know, you use the context to determine if it's talking about an alcoholic wine or just the juice, the fruit of the vine. I think in Psalm 104, and I don't know if it's... Well, like for instance... You know, there's the passage where it talks about John the Baptist, you know, he didn't drink wine, he didn't, you know, come eating and drinking, but the Son of Man, you know, is eating and drinking, and they call him gluttonous and a wine-bibber. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's a... Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, there's a couple of different factors. If you talk about biblical wine and try and compare that to what we generally have available to us today, it's kind of a subject of apples and oranges. But on the other hand, you know, there are certain things that the scripture allows for, but there's also kind of a, a clause there saying stumbling block, you know, appearance of evil and so on. Like for instance, if we go to like some restaurant, I'm not going to order a non-alcoholic cooler, you know, because I don't want to have people get the wrong impression of me, <clears throat> but I have no problem drinking NyQuil or, <laughs> or, or, you know, like, I like, 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 like personally, okay? Personally, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said drinking NyQuil. Maybe I should have said, maybe I should have said, maybe I should have said, said taking NyQuil. Oh, that would have been better. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, or like for instance, you know, if we go to if, if if we go to Olive Garden, I don't have a problem ordering like chicken marsala or something where the alcohol is supposed to be cooked out. So I mean, you know, and there's people in all different spectrums. There's 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 people that you know they they've had something in their life or their family's life where somebody was killed by a drunk driver or one of their children or their parents was an alcoholic and, 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 and they say no alcohol ever. And, you know, so, I mean, does the scripture allow for certain things? Well, according to biblical wine, like I said, is kind of apples and oranges today, but, you know, a, a, a deacon is, is to not be given to much wine. A pastor is not to be given to wine at all. Uh, Paul told Timothy, you know, use a, a, not, just, not, not just water, but take a little wine for your stomach's sake, you know. And this is biblical wine we're speaking of, not modern wine, uh, which would have been considered biblical strong drink. But, um, 
then there's the, the subject of, you know, a stumbling block as well. So um, I think, you know, I asked Cheryl, because if Mark had taught him this before, or where his stance was. And the way that, the way that she uh, expressed his stand very much encapsulates how I feel. Um, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, no, 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 no. But it does strongly suggest it's good to stay away from. And so um, it's better not to. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, when you think about, you know, something killing brain cells, you know, and the fact that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, killing brain cells doesn't seem like the best thing. Yes? Yeah. Well, you know, I recently had a couple of bouts with pancreatitis, and they said the number one cause 90% of the time is either alcoholism or, oh, what was the other one? Anyway, um, anyway, so anyway, yeah, um, I don't want to uh, <laughs> ever experience or raise my chances of doing any of that. Not that I'd have a problem anyway, but um, yeah, I got to, yeah. So anyway, oh, and you know what, you know what, according to these statistics that I read, you know, oh, man, now, now you guys are convicting me. I remember looking on the NyQuil, okay? I looked I, uh, publicly, publicly. Okay, so the NyQuil is like 30 milligrams or whatever, and it's 10% it's alcohol. So what did I say was biblical? What did I say was biblical strong drink? 7 to 10%. Vanilla flavor? I don't know. Okay, let's... Let's, let, let's move on before I have to, um, you know, publicly repent. So. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Okay. Very rarely. Okay. All right, guys. So, so Buzz back there, Buzz and Glenn, they're, uh, you know, they're helping me to feel okay about my sin. Yep. Yes, that was, exactly, that was a major use of wine in biblical times. There was so little used, but it was used specifically to keep the water drinkable, you know, what do they say, potable? Yeah, yeah, that would have been alcoholic wine, but it would have been, you know, one of the great uses of it in Bible times, where they got nothing else to be able to, 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 to purify the water from bacteria, yeah, kill off all the disease and stuff. I would imagine, I'd imagine that if I tried that, I'd probably gag and end up swallowing it or something. <laughs> no, I mean accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right, so I think... I think we've uh, we've made our case there. Okay, thank you. So, um, okay. So, 
Let's, um, let's, let's finish what we have here in verse 11 of John chapter 2. This, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So remember, Jesus' disciples were there too. The ones that he had called at that point in time, they were invited as well. Come on, bring everybody over to this wedding. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Okay, so like turn it over and look at the map. You can see where Cana is and where Capernaum is. Now, it says that they went, how to Capernaum? They went down. Now look at Capernaum there. It's a little bit north, right? Why is it, go why is it going down to Capernaum? They were going down in elevation to Capernaum, which was a lower spot uh, right there at the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so then we come to the first Passover feast. And I think we can, I think we can yeah, we can finish John chapter 2 in the time that we have here. Um, okay, uh, verses 13 through 25. And in verse 13, we see the driving out of the money changers in verse 13. Okay, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that, again, is the idea of elevation. He's going south, but he's going up. You're always going up to Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Now, when we go to Israel, I mean, there's like this kind of dramatization of uh, the money changers and how that whole process would have gone for a pilgrim to Jerusalem to do a sacrifice and these little stations to sell, you know, oxen and, and, and sheep and doves and things for the sacrifices that they can bring their out-of-state currency and they can, you know, out-of-country currency and have it exchanged for the, you know, Roman or Judean or whatever it was that would have been used at the time, shekels, and uh, use that to purchase their sacrifice. Now here we find something a little bit different than that, find something a little bit different this instance where Jesus um, drives out the money changers. By the way, he does it twice, okay? This is, this is the first instance where he does this. And we find that this is in the temple. Verse 14, in the temple, meaning the Temple Mount complex. Um, and as we read this, um, there's some things from Josephus that are quoted in this Benson commentary, this quote that I have below the passage of Scripture, that talk about what was going on in the first century with this idea of the money changers. Because... You know, you watch that video, and they're just, they're making it easier for people to do the required sacrifices, right? What's wrong with that? I mean, this guy who is just this, you know, nice-looking actor, he's just doing his job, you know, going to see uh, if he can purchase a sacrifice and doing this money change thing. We find Jesus just being, you know, he's incensed with, with wrath, you know, righteous indignation at these money changers. Why? Well, it's a little bit different than it's portrayed in that video. Okay, so he, he finds these in the temple that are selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and changers of money sitting. And we had made a scourge of small cords. He drove them all out of the temple, okay? And the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, listen to this, this quote here. <clears throat> it 
it seems that the officers whose province it was to take care of the temple permitted a market of these animals and other things necessary for the sacrifice to be kept in the court of the Gentiles. This was on the Temple Mount. This was not somewhere off to the side, outside of the walls of the Temple Mount, but this was actually on the Temple Mount proper itself, where these exchanges were being made, which kind of goes hand in hand with what we read in verse number 14 and in verse number... 15. So, um, in order that the worshipers might be supplied with the victims requisite for the altar, the consequence of which was, and this is kind of crazy, um, that there was often such a bustle of confusion there that the proselytes who came to worship could not but be much disturbed in their devotions. But the abuse did not rest here, for it is generally supposed that the priests let out this part of the temple for profit. And that the sellers, to him, enable themselves to pay the rent of their shops and stalls, demand an exorbitant price for their commodities. Nay, it is said that the priests and Levites very often sold the animals that they had received for sacrifices to the dealers in cattle. So, here you have this guy, comes up to the Temple Mount, maybe the only time in his life he's ever going to be able to do it. He, he, yeah, he goes up there, he exchanges his money, and you have to do it this way because this is how it's done. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, what's an example? Anybody have a good example of, you know, government or bureaucracy or things being laid out and done in such a way that people benefit and it's, it's, it's done in a way that's not right? So they're, they're um, making the father's house a house of merchandise. They're taking advantage of it. They're greedy of filthy lucre. And they are lending out this area, and they'll say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you do this if you, if you, you know, cut us this much of what you get. And then in response, do you know what was commonly reported that was done is that Bob would go up there, okay, Rabbi Bob, he would go up to the temple, he would get his sheep for his sacrifice by exchanging the money and purchasing this sheep. He'd go up and he'd take it up to the Levites and the priests. The priests would say, okay, we'll take it from here. Bob goes back to his home, you know, in Nazareth or whatever. And as he's leaving the Temple Mount complex, the Levites and the priests take the sheep that Bob brought for a sacrifice and they bring it back to the money changers and those that sell the oxen and they sell it again. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, so, uh, and, and uh, let's see here, where was I? Okay, nay, it is said that the priests and Levites very often sold the animals they had received for sacrifices to the dealers and cattle at a lower rate that they might sell them again with profit so that these same sacrifices were often sold to different persons and the spoils or gain of them were divided between the priests and the salesmen. In order to expedite this traffic, there were money changers at hand who gave the Jews who came from foreign countries <coughs> the current money of Judea in lieu of the money of the countries from whence they came. And for this service, they took a premium, which upon the whole became very considerable. It's like, you know, you go to an ATM. There's a 250 service charge for a cash withdrawal. You know, it's kind of that kind of thing. They're, they're taking their cut out of the money that's being changed. And the whole process is done as quickly as possible, not to help worshipers worship, or else Jesus wouldn't have had a problem with it. It was all done so that people's pockets could be lined with more and more and more money. 
quicker and uh, to a greater extent. Um, thus was the temple profaned. Boy, I mean, with everything that Mark talked about and, um, and Ezekiel and, and, and God's name being profaned. Thus was the temple profaned by the adverse, uh, I don't know what that word is, avarice of the priests, thank you, and literally made a den of thieves. What does Jesus say? I don't know if he says it here, but he says it in another, in another um, uh, occasion. You've made it a den of thieves. It shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. If it was simply what was going on in that video that we saw in Israel, the dramatization of the process of going up and changing your money and getting a sacrifice and taking it to the temple and everybody's happy and this is just wonderful, Jesus would have never called it a den of thieves. And yet there was some things going on there that caused such righteous indignation and such wrath in Jesus that he made a, scour a scourge of cords, he drove out the money changers and their animals, he poured out the money changers' money, he flipped over the tables. I mean, this was something that was um, just wicked that was going on on the temple grounds. Um, okay, so, I don't know. Yes, honestly, I mean, I've never been involved in one or been in churches that have had that kind of thing that I can recall. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been... Yeah, I mean, I've seen occasions where, like, you know, in, like, like in a mall, you know, they're saying, like, we're raising money to go to Venezuela on a missions trip. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't, I, I can't. Um, if, it, if, 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 if it was, if, if it was, let's have a church yard sale and, um, you know, like, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's sell all of our pew Bibles and and we'll keep the money. Or so, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's being done here is, is, is not only the location of it, but, but more. But also, I guess it, it, it has to do with the hearts of the people and their intent. You know, because like when you look at like, um, what is it, um, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, and that was simply saying that they had given all of their money to the church when they were holding back, and they lied in what they had said. Um, and God, you know, did not like that at all. So I think that um, it has to do with the heart of the people and the purpose. If there's a church that is doing a bake sale to raise money to go on a missions trip, that this is not going to be used for anything other than, you know, furthering the gospel. Um, but I don't know. I've never really thought about that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There was a... There, there was a a sign found, and this is in, I think, the museum in Belgium or something like that. And I think Mark read it. Mark read, I think he had it quoted in one of his um, sheets here that said, those who would enter beyond this point do so with, you know, they, they have no one else to blame but themselves for their ensuing death. <laughs> well, it, cer it certainly would have caused the disturbance, for sure. It's later, yes, near the end of his ministry. And, you know, there's been some people that have said, oh, well, it's the same occasion. It's just mentioned twice. I don't think so. I think it's two separate occasions where he does bookends. But, uh, okay, so let's see if we can finish John chapter 2 here. We're almost done. Um, okay. When our Lord viewed this scene of iniquity, we need not wonder at his indignation. 
Okay, so <clears throat> the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection, verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Why in the world are you doing these things? What reason do you have? What backing do you have? Who are you that you think you can go into the temple and do all these things and cause a disturbance? And he says unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here, I mean, we've seen in, in, in Cana, we're only in John chapter 2, and we've seen in Cana something that's alluding to Jesus' death. And then we see a prophecy, the very first prophecy, at least in John, of Jesus' resurrection his public statement that I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again three days later. Um, okay, so let's finish off here with the last couple of verses of John chapter 2. Jesus doesn't entrust the crowd with the truth of his Messiahship. In other words, he doesn't believe in their belief, <laughs> which is kind of a weird way to put it. But Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name. And I had this, what happened? Okay, I had this highlighted. I had the word believed highlighted, okay? And I also, I thought I had a, a note of what this word is. Anyway, um, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. The word commit, Jesus did not commit himself unto them, is the exact same word many believed in his name. It's the exact same Greek word, and it has the idea of to entrust, to put faith in, to commit yourself unto by faith, to commit your trust to. And so Jesus did not commit himself unto them. He didn't entrust himself unto them, okay? His, his reputation, his public identity as the Messiah, who he was and what he had done, he didn't, you know... There was many that when they saw the miracles, they said, okay, we, we're, we're believing in you now. We're believing what you said. Later in John chapter 8, we're going to see some Jews that believed on him. And in fact, they didn't at all. They were just simply agreeing with him up to that point. And once he says, you need to be made free from your sin, they say, you know, they eventually end up saying, you have a devil. You know, they didn't trust him as their savior, but they were, okay, we're on the same page with you, Jesus. We like what you're doing. We're, we're you know... Believing you as much as a crazy mob of people can believe with what we're seeing. We're excited about what you're doing for us. We're excited about these miracles and the spectacle. And it says, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he didn't want to, and later we see Jesus when he gives the great commission to his disciples, and also, you know, he by extent, extension in you know, Acts 1.8, be witnesses unto him. Those are the points in which he entrusts himself to man. Here, he does not do that because he knows what's in the heart of man. He knows that they are just, you know, glory hounds. And, I mean, he had just overthrown a den of thieves in the temple. They're greedy. They'll, you know, try and use whatever they can for gain um, in their own personal lives. And he just... He, he said to himself, 
okay, I, I, I recognize that you are agreeing with me and that you're believing what I'm saying, at least on the surface, but I'm not committing myself to you. I'm not entrusting this glorious truth of who I am into your hands because I know that you would misuse it at this point. So, I guess, yes, the first of the three that are in Scripture. And we find those, and that's how we kind of can determine that Jesus' earthly ministry was three and a half years long based upon the Passovers and when they happened. Is there any questions or comments? And maybe in six months or so, we'll get into John chapter 3. Oh, I know. Well, praise the Lord. And if you don't remember anything else, remember moonshine sitting back there. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. Oh, I can't, I can't get off scot-free on this one. Oh, all right, okay, all right. Okay, well, let's pray, and then we'll have some refreshments. Lord, I thank you for this night. Thank you so much for being able to open your word once again. Lord, thank you for helping us through this chapter. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.